Welcome to Growth Marketing Today, where marketers, designers, and product owners level up their growth marketing chops from experts in today's top startups. Here's your host, Ramley John. Hey, welcome to episode 39 of Growth Marketing Today. You are in for a treat. I have April Dunford, a marketing position expert and author of just released book, Obviously Awesome. Now, a lot of people think that they have a lead gen problem or an acquisition problem or a sales problem when really April says that they have a positioning problem. That means that companies don't really know the value their product is giving to the right target audience. She says that once you nail that, demand gen, acquisition, and sales have a more coherent and easier job. Now, April goes through her methodology that she writes in her book in helping companies from startups to $40 billion companies to figure out their marketing positioning. Now, if you want to get the show notes and tweetable quotes from April, and there's so many, this, I'm going to warn you right now, this episode has so much good stuff. If you want to get those quotes, the high-level quotes, go to growthmarketing.today forward slash 039 or you can click on the link in the description whether you're getting this Apple Podcast, Google Play, or even on Spotify. Also, if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, I'd love for it if you leave me a review so we can get this podcast out to more marketers out there. Anyways, I don't want to hold you back anymore. Here's my chat with April. Hey, everyone. Uh, I have here April. I'm so excited to chat with her. She has a book that's coming out, and she's been traveling all over, all over the world. I'm, I'm so happy to catch you, April. How are you? Oh, I'm so happy to be here. How are you? I'm doing really great. Uh, it's, uh, it's a great day here in Toronto, even though it's a little cold. <laughs> It's not a great day in Toronto. Okay, this is lies. It's cold. It's pouring rain. <laughs> it's Friday. I mean, it's a it's, it, that's a sunny attitude, and I appreciate that. That's true. <laughs> I'm just well. That's a few things. You know, it's weekend. I'm I'm watching Endgame this weekend. I haven't watched it. I'm not sure if you've seen. Oh, I've Debbie. seen it, and I, you know. I'm so full of spoilers okay, that I, I right. get, it's Duh. like I can't say anything to anybody <laughs> because like I literally can't have conversations. It comes oh, up no. and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to leave the room now because oh, no. I'm so full of spoilers. And in Game of Thrones, are you a fan? What's that? Are you a fan of Game of Thrones? Uh, no, you oh, know, no. I, di- I don't watch any, oh. I, you know, I go to the movies and I, and otherwise I don't, I pretty much watch nothing else on a screen. That's, it's that's funny. True. It's weird. It does take quite an investment. I mean, it's been eight. I know. Years. That's what everybody's telling me is that it's too late because, <laughs> because I'd have to go back 9,000 episodes and catch up. And I'm like, oh, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah, I've done true. all right so far. That's true. And that's why I'm saying it's a good day because the weekend is, is coming for me. But anyway, I know it's cold. Yeah. Um, thanks for coming on. Uh, I, I want to chat about your career journey so far. I love this. I love talking about this because I think when I was starting off in my career, graduating from university, I always thought it was going to be linear and I realized it's completely that it's more of a zigzag. And how did you become a highly sought after speaker and author of a, a upcoming book? <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it, it's been it didn't go the way I thought it was going to go. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, 
So I, you know, in high school, they make you make these choices in high school, right? That are so dumb because you're young <laughs> and stupid. You don't know anything. But like, you know, I grew up in a really small town, but I had really good marks. And so when you grow up in a really small town and you have really good marks, you're going to be a doctor. Like, that's what you're going to be. <laughs> and so I went to school and uh, I ended up at the University of Waterloo, weirdly oh. doing an undergrad program. But I had, a, but it had co-op. And so I thought that was cool because I was going to get to pay for it. And then I did that for a couple of years. I applied to med school. I got into med school and then I kind of got cold feet and was like, what? I don't, do I really want to be a doctor? I never really <laughs> thought about this. And I was kind of always into tech. So I switched into engineering because I'm at University of Waterloo. It's like the world's greatest engineering school. Yeah, so, I actually studied there for math. So did you? Water, water, oh, Waterloo. <laughs> yay, go Waterlooers. Um, so, uh, so, I, so I went to systems on engineering and that was fun. And I did a bunch of work terms that were really fun. Um, And then when I graduated, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Um, at that point, a lot of people in my class were going to work at Microsoft. I actually hired a lot out of my graduating class, and they were hot at the moment. And um, and so a lot of people did that, and I didn't want to program. I knew I didn't want to do that, but um, I... Uh, Uh, I didn't, but I had debts, <laughs> you know, and so I was like, I need a job. And I ended up getting a job at a startup and this was like late nineties. That's how old I am. So I, I got this job at a startup and literally no one went to a startup. Like that was, you know, that was before there was venture capital. Like right. there, like there was, you know, there was venture capital, but hardly anybody got it. Like I didn't know what a stock option was. Like nobody went to a startup. There was nothing cool about it. But my friend worked at a startup. So she got me a job there. And, uh, and the job I had happened to be in the marketing department, which is weird. Uh, but the thing we were selling was a database, like it was um, a quite technical product that we were selling to a very technical audience. And so my job was to be a technical evangelist where I was going to go out and, and like, demo SQL queries and, you know, kind of terrible tech demos like this. And, uh, and then what happened was that company got acquired. My boss left the company. I took over the department and, and all of a sudden I'm two years out of engineering school and I'm running marketing at this big global company. And I got all these people in this big budget And I have no, I don't have a clue what I'm doing, but I, you know, one thing you do get, you know, Waterloo engineering, if there's one thing it teaches you, it's like, you get kind of arrogant. And so you're a bit like, well, how hard could it be? It can't be harder than mechanics of formable solids. <laughs> That was hard. <laughs> so, so I just kind of kept going. And I, and more importantly, I thought it was really, really fun. Like mm. I thought it was hard in a good way. Like it was like a puzzle. How, like, how do you take something that's really complicated and make it easy for the people that want to buy it, um, you know, and market it in such a way that people are just think, oh, it's obvious I need that thing. And so from that moment, I was a bit hooked. And then after that, I did a series of startups where I came in around seed series A stage. I came in as the first senior marketing hire, um, built a team, grew revenues, And, and I, I did that six or seven times in a row for five, six of them. We got acquired. And so then you'd flip over to the big company for a couple of years, work there, work on different kinds of things, bigger things. And then I get bored and I pop out and I go do the next one. And so I've been doing that for like years, like decades. <laughs> 
And then, uh, you know, and then the last couple of years I've transitioned into doing more consulting. And so my focus has really been around, um, you know, I wanted to tackle something hard and not just kind of do general marketing consulting. And I, I settled in on the idea of, of really focusing on positioning because I my experience across all those companies was that the positioning piece was sort of the foundational element. And if you could get that right, then a lot of things that come downstream from that, uh, you know, messaging, demand generation, uh, sales programs, all that stuff is easier if you get the positioning right. So I focused on that. And so a lot of the, you know, so the book is on that. If you can see me in a conference speaking, I'm talking about positioning. That's kind of the only thing I care about right now. So, so that's how I got here. So I don't know. It's a bit of a zigzag. Like I didn't go to med school. (laughs) (laughs) Are you glad that you didn't go to med school? Well, you know, I did have moments where right. I thought, you know, that was a bad idea, April. <laughs> you know, like when you're sitting in your office at, in the middle of the night and and no nothing's going your way, like yeah, you have these thoughts. But no, I think it was I think it was, you know, who knows what it would have looked like. It's it's hard to compare against a theoretical thing. But yeah, sometimes I th- sometimes I think about it. I you know, I wish right my only regret about being in tech right now is I, I almost never work with people like me. And that's a bit of a bummer. I don't work with, I, I don't, you don't work with a lot of women and that, and I kind of, that's a bit of a bummer, but I also don't ever work with any old people. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, like I, every meeting I go into, I'm, you know, I'm not that old, but still I'm 10 years older at least than most people in the room. And, you know, and I have friends that are doctors and, you know, when when you're a doctor, the older you get, That's the true. better you get. And in tech, people start getting a bit suspicious. <laughs> you know, what are you still doing here? <laughs> but or you just become a VC is usually That's what true. happens if, if you're a dude. But um, yeah, but uh, but those are my only two regrets. Like I, I kind of miss working with people like me some days. I think oh, it would be neat to work. And but, but then what I do is I end up taking on a client where people are my age, and then I feel better about life. But I think that's a miss because like the more experience you get, the more ex- expertise that you have, and that's really what you've done is become an expert in in yeah, market positioning. Yes and no. Like the problem with tech is you need to stay in the game, right? right? Like everything changes. Mm. Like the, it, things change a lot. And so you have to kind of, you have to maintain a certain level of excitement about new stuff. Right. And and some folks just, you know, they just don't, they get tired or they, they get, you know, they find their thing that they're really good at, that they really like, and then they just kind of ride on that. Whereas I think um, if you really want to do tech you know, in the later part of your years, you you still got to be excited about the possibilities and what's going on. And there's lots of us that are, obviously, but but I don't know. I think there's a certain I don't. Uh, I also think tech is ageist, and <laughs> that's yeah, I do I do <laughs> like, find that yeah. <laughs> they're ageist, and there's this idea that you know we all have to be sitting around drinking Red Bull, or working twenty <laughs> hours a day, or, you know, or else oh, we're not man. doing it. Whereas you know, the older you get, the smarter you get about stuff like that. But, um, but yeah, so I think that, I don't know, it's, it's a weird thing. I wish, I, I wish there were more people like me in tech. I, sometimes I wish, yeah, like I have my own crowd, you know, and we have, we have regular drinks and we all complain about that. We're like, <laughs> oh, none of us has any one of us in our companies, you know. 
That, that's how well, that's unfortunate because like let's talk about market positioning and what one of the things that I think is a miss and you know what's taught in school in terms of positioning is it's very high level uh, they focus on oh my god segmenting. it's terrible it's yeah. terrible what they teach you in school yeah, yeah. you know four piece and all that stuff and and telling messages to those segments like if you're trying to sell somebody to uh, like a sunglasses to a, a crowd you would like for example focus on affluent men in the twenties who care about that looks but. It doesn't always work, and and what for you? Why doesn't that work for maybe poor B two B products? Yeah, so you know, so be, because of my background, because I came in with no formal marketing education at the beginning, I thought, uh, "Holy crap, I, I'm going to have to get that <laughs> like a quick <laughs> before someone discovers I know nothing and fires me." And so I read all these books and I took all these courses. Um, and, uh, the first thing I, the first thing I noticed was that a lot of the, at least at that time, maybe it's changed now, but a lot of the courses I was taking and the, the, the sort of, um, you know, big foundational books on marketing were very oriented towards B2C. Mm. And so, uh, and in particular, when you were talking about segmentation, uh, a B2C segmentation is usually um, super demographically oriented because that's kind of a lot of times that's all you've got to go on. Uh, whereas in B2B, uh, the equivalent to demographics in B2B is firmographics, like how big is your company and what geography is it in and what business is it in. Uh, and those are almost never, they're, you, you know, they're useful, but they are insufficient to do a segmentation in B2B. So that's the first thing that I noticed was, mm. you know, we were doing segmentation in a completely different way than what I learned in books and courses and things. Because, you know, we were segmenting with, we weren't just saying, oh, you're a Fortune 500 company. We'd say, you're a company with more than a thousand employees that has three mainframes and an Oracle database. That's my segmentation. And that's very different than saying, you know, more than a thousand employees that happens to be in Manhattan. Like it's just different. So that's one thing. The second thing is that, um, uh, on the positioning side in particular, I found this to be super stunning was that there was no methodology for doing it. Mm. And my little engineering brain just could not get around that. Like I kept bumping into, you know, pro positioning problems. So every product I worked on, we had to do a repositioning at some point. And what they taught you in school was you should do a positioning statement. And this positioning statement is like this Mad Libs fill in the blanks exercise. You know, we are a blank for blank, unlike blank that does blank. And you would take things like your market category and just write it down. And so th th that drove me crazy. I was like, you know, I've at this point, you know, across my career, I've launched 16 products. Every single one of those products I could have positioned in a handful of market categories. So it, it, here I am sitting there doing a positioning statement going, we are, you know, we're blank and the blank is market category. I'm like, well, how do I know which one to pick? And according to the positioning statement, the answer to that question is obvious. And it's the first thing that pops into my mind, which is bananas. So, so again, as an engineer, that really frustrated me. And so the, part of what I've spent the last few years doing is thinking about if I was a tech company, like if I was, you know, if I wanted to do this properly, 
what are the steps I would actually take to figure out what right. my best market category is? And, you know, how do I figure out exactly what my differentiated value is and who my competitive comparables are? And like, how do I actually fill in the blanks? And so th- this is kind of what I've been focused on. And this is what I do now as a consultant. But the book describes this methodology that, you know, I piece together over, you know, first using it myself in my own career for my own products I was repositioning. And then I started teaching classes at a local startup accelerator. So I was trying to teach this stuff to other people, which is which is terrible, too. Like, you think you know it, and then you stand in front of a group full of cynical tech people, and they're like, yeah, lady, that doesn't make any sense. And so, you know, so I got better at teaching it. And now I do, like, a lot of the work I do as a consultant is with you know, early or growth stage tech companies that, you know, want to want to double down on their positioning or make sure their positioning is good. Um, we can do these workshop things in a couple of days where, we, you know, we walk through the methodology with the, the right people in the room and we can kind of get to a good thing. But uh, coming back to your question about why they do such a lousy job teaching it, I don't know. Like, I, you know, I think, you know, originally when I was in marketing, when I was in marketing classes, I would notice that there was no one like me in the class, right? Everybody there was going to go work at Procter and Gamble or, you know, and so I think if you got a marketing degree back then, that's where you went. And then then meanwhile, you, you walked over to the tech companies and everybody in marketing had a computer science or an engineering (laughs) degree or, you know, a math degree or something. And, and you're like, well, no wonder (laughs) none of us are turning into marketing professors anytime soon. So I could see where this doesn't. Now, today, I think they do a better job of it. And they, there's certainly way better information online, you know, from people that aren't necessarily university professors, but, you know, know an awful lot about marketing. So I think it's better now. But boy, when I started, it was really bad. Yeah, that's that's true. That's what I found with the marketing and, and some of the courses that I took were like, wow, this is like very like just scratching the surface. Now you, you, you started delving into this. You're teaching it now. You're, you wrote a book about it. I'm curious what the steps you were alluding to. What are the steps that you would take to, let's say, take a, a growth company and figuring out their positioning? Yeah. So like the first thing is, you know, so I started with the positioning statement, right? So I said, you know, the neat thing about the positioning statement is the blanks are kind of like the component pieces of your positioning. Mm. Right? This is the, the every the, each blank is super important. So I thought, well, if I could just pull the blanks out of the positioning statement and then figure out a methodology for figuring out what goes in each of those blanks, then I would have a methodology for positioning. This is literally my thinking at the beginning. And so the the blanks are like five things. So there's competitive alternatives, so you need to know who you're comparing yourself to. Then there's um, your unique features. So compared to those alternatives, you have these capabilities that they don't. And then the next bit is value. Like those capabilities translate into value for customers. That's why they care and they buy you. And and then there's uh, who your customers are. So you have to kind of figure out what your segmentation looks like. And then the, and then the last bit is the uh, the market category. So you know what market do you intend to win? And, you know, how do you position yourself in that particular market? So I thought, okay, I just need to figure out how to do all of those. And so the more I dug into that and started looking at it, the first thing I realized was the five things actually 
all have relationships to each other. And this is another reason why the positioning statement is is terrible because it doesn't surface it doesn't surface that or even give you a clue that that's true, but it's absolutely true. Like if I'm thinking about differentiated value or differentiated features, they're only differentiated if I compare them to something else. So I kind of need to know what my competitive comparables are before I can tell you what my differentiated features are. And then the same thing goes for um, segmentation. Like what I should be doing is saying, what's my value? And then doing my segmentation because my segmentation is who are the people that care a lot about that value? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what your segmentation fundamentally is. And then when you think about market category at a big picture level, market category is actually, you can think of it as like context setting for products. What the market category is, is it's the best category that you can position yourself in that makes that value obvious to your target segment. So all the things kind of relate to each other. Like I can't start with my market category and work backwards. I could, but I might end up with lousy positioning, right? I might end up with completely undifferentiated value, which if you look at the companies I work with, a lot of times the weakness in their positioning is because of that. So they've started out by sitting down and saying, what's our value? And they write down a bunch of value and then they say, ooh, this is our value. And then they, or they'll start with, here's our target customers and what's the value that they care about and they'll work from that. But you can't actually start there because it matters who your competitive comparables are. And it doesn't matter who you think your competitive comparables are. (laughs) It matters what your best customers think your competitive comparables are, which makes that whole thing a bit cyclical too. So I literally spent like a year (laughs) (laughs) figuring out like all the things relate to each other, but there needs to be a starting point. Like I can't start from nothing here. And so, so so I ended up with two things. One, if you don't have a lot of customers yet, it doesn't make sense to actually spend a lot of time on your positioning because you don't actually know the answers to the questions that you need to know. So you need to have a certain amount of traction is the first thing. And then the second thing is, once you have a certain amount of traction, you got a bunch of customers, you'll go out and ask your customers like, who would you compare us to? Or what do you think, you know, if we didn't exist, the good question is, if we didn't exist, what would you do? And I started out thinking, well, I could just survey all your customers and ask them that, and that would give me an idea of competitive comparables. <laughs> but then when I did that, <laughs> uh, I got the, I got this mess of crap. <laughs> like, and I'm, like, and I'm like, oh my God, your customers don't agree at all. You all they all think you're compared to something else. But then what, what, what I actually learned is that once you have a certain amount of traction, you have a whole bunch of customers, Not all of them are great customers. Some of them are lousy customers. Some of them bought you and they didn't really get what you did. And they, if they were smarter, they would have went with someone else. And if you were smarter, you would have never taken them on as a client because, because they're terrible customers that, you know, they call support every day. They're just angry that your product isn't this thing that they want it to be. And it just isn't. And then you've got other customers that just love your stuff, love it. Like they, they, you know, the first time you pitched them, they got it. They, you know, they bought and they didn't ask for a discount. They don't turn on you. They tell your friends about you. They pitch your stuff better than you do. And so what you actually want to do is filter for those people, go to those people. And then you ask just them the question, Hey, if we didn't exist, we all got hit by a bus tomorrow. Company doesn't exist anymore. If we didn't exist, what would you do And you will definitely see the patterns if you do that Mm. consistently every time. 
And those are your competitive comparables. And it's often stunning what they'll tell you. So they'll say, oh, well, you know, if you guys weren't here, eh, maybe I'd just use a spreadsheet. Or, you know, I'll go back to doing what I was doing before, which I just hired some interns. (laughs) And B2B spreadsheets and interns are almost always your competitors. (laughs) So true. And yet, you know, we as startups, we're super smart about our target segment. So we think our competitors are the people we're competing with for venture capital dollars, <laughs> which are all these dinky-do little startups that, you know, chances are your customers have never even heard of. And so the starting point is really important. So for step one, you got to figure out, you know, for the people that love you, what are the competitive comparables? And then you can go to step two and say, well, compared to that, what capabilities do we have that they don't? This is like feature function, right? I can save a profile. Can't do that in Excel, can you? <laughs> right? I can, you know, I can, you know, I, the, the, you could talk about all the features you have. Um, and, and a lot of, and again, startups mess this up sometimes. But if you have the wrong competitive comparable, you'll get to the wrong differentiated features. Because, you know, I talk to lots of startups and they'll tell me, oh, you know what our our differentiator is ease of use because look at our beautiful UI and look at how nice it is. <laughs> you know, all the time. And then they'll show me all the other crummy startups on the on, on the market and they're, and they're like, we're way easier to use than these guys. It's much more intuitive. All our com- customers tell us, they love it. But then you go talk to the customers and say, well, what would, what would you use if that didn't exist? And they say, well, we'd hire an intern. And I'm like, you know what's really easy, easy to use? An intern. It's like, <laughs> hey, Joe, do this thing for me while you're at it. Get me a coffee. Uh, so, you know, if you if you got the right competitive comparables and your competitive comparable is Excel, right. then you can't really talk about ease of use as being all that differentiated because people know Excel. They're, they're hot shots at Excel. So this, so that gets you to a, usually a gigantic list of features. Like, you know, and sometimes I do this exercise and we got hundreds of these things. But then the next step you go to is, well, for each of those features, what is the value that that translates into for customers? Mm. And the interesting magic that happens in this step is you usually end up with one or two sort of themes of value. So one might be, you know, we're reducing the manual work involved in doing whatever, which frees up your time for whatever, or you can spend less on staff to do whatever, or you can, you know, make less mistakes around doing this thing because there's less manual transcription and that's going to save you money because you're not doing a lot of rework or, you know, making costly mistakes where you got to pay a fine or something. So you end up with, you might have like a hundred features, but and have that map into like three uh, themes of value. And usually that's what we end up with, like three. Mm. Sometimes we'll end up with two really major ones and a couple of minor ones, and we'll drop those off. Um, but usually no more than like four max before we start getting into ones that are just a different order of value and, you, you know, you can kind of leave them off or weave them into one of the major points mm. of value. So once you have that, then you can kind of say, okay, well, if our if our big value is this, who should we be trying to sell to, right. and why? Mm. And what you're really looking for is what what is it about certain customers that makes them really really put a put a premium on that value? Mm. So who cares a lot about that? So you might end up with this value that says. Oh, you know, we can, you know, we we can reduce the errors when you're doing invoicing. And then you say, well, I could sell that to anybody who does invoicing 
But the people that really care a lot are the people that make a lot of errors in their invoices. Well, why do they make a lot of errors in their invoices? Well, one, because they have a lot of them, right? And you might say, well, oh, if, you, if you're doing more than a thousand invoices a month, you really care about this. If you're only doing one, you don't care and you probably don't make that many mistakes because you're not doing a thousand of them. And so that's what you're trying to get at in your segmentation. You're trying to say, if I was standing in the outside, how would I know that you feel this pain more acutely than other people mm. or other companies. And, and so what are the characteristics of a company that really intensely feels the pain? Therefore, the value is super value. Right. And you, you want to be careful on this step because that segment needs to be big enough to meet your business goals. So sometimes you can niche this down so niche that it's like, yeah, my mom, <laughs> that's it. My mom, she cares the most. And, and that's, you know, you can't build a business on that. But... Uh, you know, I did this exercise recently for um, a company and we were talking about um, uh, different types of banks. And so they're, they're selling to banks. And so there's there's uh, retail banks, there's investment banks, there's credit unions. Um, you know, there's, there's certain kind of financial services offerings that insurance companies do. And so at the beginning, we were starting with like, you know, banking, like anybody that's in financial services would want to have this. But when you looked at the value that the company offered, it was particularly valuable if you were a credit union mm. because of the way credit unions work, because of the offerings they sell. And then we said, well, okay, can we make the number if we just sold to credit unions? <laughs> <laughs> and so we, you know, we looked it up and it turns out there's thousands and mm. thousands and thousands of credit unions in the United States. They got a revenue target. They could easily, they could, they could capture like one out of a hundred, one out of a thousand actually credit unions and still make the number. And you're like, well, why wouldn't you just sell to credit unions then? Let's sell to credit unions this year and next year we'll reevaluate it. Maybe we'll branch out to retail banking next year. So you want to get it as narrow as you can, but not, not so narrow that you can't make your number. Um, getting it narrow is important because it makes it easier to build a marketing plan. It makes it easier right. to build really ta targeted value propositions, all that stuff. And then the last step is you say, okay, these are the people. This is the value. What market am I in? So, you know, in the case of this one, you might want to say, you know, we're the solution that does blank for credit unions. You, like you might actually want to position yourself that mm. way so that credit unions call you. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're only going to focus on credit, you, you could position yourself as that for a year. And then next year you say, oh, for, you know, retail banks and credit <laughs> unions or retail banking, you know, kind of encompasses credit unions too. And then you'll widen it out after that. And then, and then you can be financial services after that. But um, so it, it, the market category is sort of like, you know, it answers the questions, you know, what is this thing and why should I care? So, you know, and you might have a choice. You might say, well, look, if our, if our, if our value is this and the people we're talking to, you know, we might be able to make a choice between like, there's lots of categories that overlap, like email and, and text messaging or messaging overlaps a lot. Um, email and team collaboration overlap a lot. And, you know, if my value looks more like something that team collaboration does, then you should just say your team collaboration and don't say your email, right? Like, so these are the decisions you have to make in the last step. So those are the steps. Like, there's tricks to each of them. And, you know, and the book gets into this in gory detail. But 
Um, but those are essentially the steps. That's how you actually get to the blanks to fill in the blanks in the positioning statement. Not that you would do it, because if you went through all those steps, then you could actually create a document that that documents your thinking on this that that says this is why you know this is why we got to it, and this is the order we got to it in, so that people could even not just understand what the positioning is, but how you got there. Wow, it's so good. I wish I learned this in school. <laughs> Yeah, me too, man. I spent <laughs> I spent tons of time on this going, well, I don't oh, understand man. it. Like if this is so foundational, right. this is so important. What? We don't have a methodology for doing it? Right, cuz like I'm, that like it still blows my mind. Yeah, at least like you said, uh the, the the way the more you talk about it, I can see it leading to everything from demand gen to paid acquisition to copywriting. Right, like because the way, like, think about it. Like, let's say you you thought you were for financial services, and then you did the exercise and went, "Oh crap, we're just doing credit unions." Well, my marketing plan looks totally different. In fact, it's way better. Right. Because I can write down a list. Here's all my credit unions. I can get my messaging super focused on credit unions. I can go to the credit unions conference. I can buy ads in the credit unions magazine. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I can be sponsoring the credit unions that's email true. list, all this stuff. And and that's totally different than saying, oh, we're, we're focused on Fortune 500 companies. Like, I don't even know how to build a marketing plan for that. I don't know how anybody, like, what do I do? Take out a full page ad in the Wall Street <laughs> Journal? That sounds stupid. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So, you know, the more focused you get on this stuff and you can see you get to the end of it and like it, everything's easier. Right. Well, you know, what what marketing tactics should I do? Well, marketing tactics that hit these people <laughs> is the answer so to that. Right. And so if you're not clear on that, which is your positioning, you're not clear on your positioning. It's really hard to build a marketing plan. It's really hard to do messaging. It's really hard. And so a lot of the folks that come to me, they'll say, oh, we have this terrible marketing problem and they think it's a lead gen problem or they think it's a sales problem, but you scratch it and you're like, you know what your problem is? You don't really know the value you deliver and you don't really know who are the best people to deliver that value to. And so if you got solid on that, then everything downstream is easy. Mm, so good. I think just uh, what I'm getting from this is I should, everybody should go buy your book. <laughs> just <figured>. Everybody, <laughs> you know, <laughs> You know, it's well, you know, if you're trying to figure this out, I think you should read some books. Like I I do think like the book that I always kept coming back to was um uh Reason Trout 1982. Wow. Wrote this book called Positioning the Battle for Your Mind. And they defined what positioning is, and then they gave some case studies. They they were advertising guys. They run an ad agency, and so they gave some case studies of like ad ad uh, campaigns that they worked on and uh, but they didn't give you any hint about how they did mm. it right they just they like they didn't have they didn't tell you a methodology they didn't um, say step one step two they just said oh you know we worked on this thing for Hertz and and this is what we did <laughs> and and so you read the case studies and you went oh that's genius but what you were supposed to do then is call them and get them to oh, do it for man. you okay that's this and bad. so but if you just want to know what positioning is and really get your arms around it that I still recommend that book even though it's super old um, but it's still kind of a great read on that. But beyond that, on specifically on the topic of positioning, um, you know, there's not a lot of good stuff out there. Mm. Like uh, Jeffrey Moore's Crossing the Chasm has a section in that book where he talks about 
the segmentation in the smartest way I've ever seen, which is he had this concept of a bowling pin strategy, which was you were going to separate all the markets you could go after into like pins. And so you got a picture like bowling pins all stacked up. And then, but at the beginning, you're just trying to knock down the lead pin. And then once you've knocked that one down, then you're going to get three adjacent pins. And that's kind of the equivalent of saying, I'm going to go sell to credit unions. And then after I'm, after I got that credit unions, I'm doing good there. And I'm sort of saturating that market. Then I'm going to knock over retail banks and whatever and whatever. And then when I have them knocked over, then I'm going to go Mm. get insurance, investment banking, whatever. And eventually I get the whole market. And that I think is a genius concept. And I still believe in that deeply, that that is the best way for startups to survive and grow and get some early traction and get bigger rather than saying, we're going to take on the market leader and, you know, we're five people (laughs) or we're going to create a new market and we're five people and we have no money and we have to convince the whole market that a market should exist. I I still think bowling pinning this stuff is the best way to do it. So those things, but yeah, but buy my book too, by all means. (laughs) Yep. All my listeners better buy April's book. It's coming out. What? May, May, uh, May May 14th is what you can pre-order it now. But by the time this thing goes live, we'll probably be past May 14th. So yeah, you can buy it on Amazon or, or if you're in Canada, chapters Indigo will have it or anywhere Barnes and Noble, anywhere books are sold you can search for it and find it yeah it's it's a i think it's going to be super helpful for Mm. people i can't wait to get it out and get some feedback like (laughs) i struggled a lot with i struggle a lot writing it because it's a complicated topic and i'm really deep on it and so much in the same way that when i first tried to teach positioning in a class i was really bad at it uh when i first tried to write it down in a book that was bad too and so (laughs) I ended up, you know, I'm trying to make it really, really simple. I'm trying to make it short too, because I don't think people like to read, to be honest with you. And so I tried to make it as, as, as exactly as long as it needed to be and no longer and giving you exactly as much information about the process and, and, and that's it. And so I don't know, we'll see if I succeed, <laughs> but you know, you can buy an ebook for like seven, eight bucks. So like oh, for man. the cost of a, a, a delicious draft beer, you could, you know, you could buy it and then, you know, send me an email and say, Hey, that's great. Or send me an email and say, you know what, April, not so good. That's so good. <laughs> yeah. If, if it's anything like our conversation right now, I think it's, it's going to be great. Uh, I hope so, but I don't know, man. I've been surprised before. This is one thing you learn in marketing. Like, you really don't know until you get it launched. It's true. <laughs> you hope so, but sometimes you're surprised. That's, that's so true. Hey, I, I want to be mindful of your time. I, I have two more, a couple more questions. Like, are you still sure. good for time? Of course, yeah. I want to talk about branding because I've seen some tweets and some answers from you on hot topic right now. Branding. Everybody wants to talk about branding. I see like David Cancel, CEO of Drift. Yeah. Drift. Drift is doing a great job evangelizing this idea of this. What I would say is a new concept of branding. Yeah. What are you, what are your thoughts? I I am curious. Like go up, go all out. Yeah. So, so the thing is, is, you know, when I got, again, coming back to my history, right? So when I first landed in marketing, I I go and take all these classes and stuff and they're talking about branding and, and the way people talked in brand about branding back then was, you know, branding was kind of like, like we used to create these branding guides at companies and the, and the brand guide was, 
this is the font we use. Um, this is how we think about graphics. Like we, we like illustrations or we don't like illustrations. We like stock photo. We don't like stock photo. These are our brand colors. This is our um, tone of voice. Like, you know, we are playful versus authoritative, you know, and so, and, and all this stuff. And so they, and again, I felt that was very relevant if you were selling to consumers, but less relevant if I was trying to sell to, to businesses, not that it's irrelevant, but in my opinion, you could ignore a lot of that for an awful long time and still sell a pile of stuff. Like so, <laughs> so like I, I worked for a company on a contract, but I did a contract for about a year for a company that is a hundred billion revenue company. At that point, wow. they were forty billion, forty billion revenue, and I can tell you for a fact. None of that stuff was in play. <laughs> like, <laughs> we didn't have a single conversation about our tone of voice or our whatever. And the reason we didn't, the reason it didn't matter is because they sold to big telcos. And where the brand really happened in terms of how the company thought about us was, you know, when they interacted with our hundred salespeople that were assigned to that account, mm. you know, and we were doing like a hundred million in in any given particular account. They didn't go to our website. <laughs> you know, they, they, they might see our, we, we weren't selling any commercial stuff at that point. So they didn't see ads from us. They didn't, I mean, and so, you know, in it is so, you know, for the longest time I was like, in a startup, if you're B2B and you're selling to enterprise, branding is bullshit. It's a nice to have. It's right. a nice to have. But I'm telling you, you're not going to do a $10 million deal based on your fonts mm. and your tone of voice. Like you might lose a deal if you're too casual in your tone of voice and what you sell is security software. But it, it, that's just obvious. But I mean, other than some of that stuff, like I thought, you know, spend a little time on it, but don't spend much. Now, if what you sell to are very small businesses, then, you know, maybe that's different, right? And 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 then maybe it starts feeling a bit more consumer. Um, and here's the other thing. People have now redefined branding completely. And, and Drift in particular, I think, has a really neat idea around this where, you know, it, 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 so what I hear people say now when they talk about branding is branding is the sum total of all of the experiences that a customer has with you as a company. Mm. And it's how they feel about you as a result. Right. And I'm like, well, by that definition, <laughs> my 40 billion revenue company spent a lot of time on branding, even though we didn't care about fonts and colors and logos or the website. The website was terrible. But we did you have giant training programs for all of our folks. We had service level agreements up the wazoo in terms of if you called us and and wanted us to do something, we did it. You know, there was all this stuff in the culture around delivering on our commitments and, you know, our philosophy around customer service. Like we had all that stuff in spades. So if that's branding, then that's super important. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like you can't actually do Yeah, that's actually super duper duper important. So I think, you know, unfortunately, you know, as marketers, 
we're too damn tricky for our own good. Like we love to redefine things to the point where they're meaningless. Like, you know, I don't, I don't even know what the word marketing means anymore, because if I say it to somebody, it means 19 things to 19 people. I say segmentation. No one knows what you mean. I say positioning. No one knows what you mean. And now it's, I'll add branding to that pile. I say branding and no one knows what you mean. Right. So yeah, if, if, so if you define branding as the way a customer feels across, you know, when they take the sum total of every single interaction they've had with you across any channel, whatever, whatever, then yeah, clearly that's super important. And, but I think how that manifests is very different. Like how you would actually execute on being a great brand if you're drift is very different than if you're SAP. Now, when, when you're talking about experiences, just one more topic I, I want to chat about before uh, we finish. I, you have very strong opinions about freemium as well, because like we've seen a lot of companies in terms of experiences, they're introducing like um, yeah. free trial, not just free trial, but like a free version of their product. What are you, what are your thoughts on on that, like, especially yeah, with HubSpot, so, like opening up? Yeah, freemium. I've seen a lot of I've seen a lot of people give very smart talks on this recently. And so, um, but I, I, I still hate freemium. <laughs> so, so I, so I saw, um, I saw, uh, a, a guy give a talk on this the other day and he made this very compelling case where he said, look, um, customer acquisition costs are going through the roof because the markets that we operate in are extraordinarily crowded. And so because customer acquisition costs are getting more and more, then you need to eliminate the friction of purchase from customer acquisition. And you need to have a freemium strategy so that you can just be pouring customers mm. into this funnel and, and, you know, and then convert them into paying later. But, you know, you got to get them using your stuff and take all the friction out of that. If price is friction, then, then do freemium. Where I believe that falls apart is, uh, I don't I don't actually believe that price is friction mm. for customers that are ultimately going to buy. Right. So I what I do think freemium like here's all the things I don't like about freemium. What I don't like about freemium is how it works with your positioning. So you have to be very careful what goes in the free thing versus what mm. goes in the thing you charge That's because tricky. you have now positioned the core of your product as worthless. <laughs> and so I can't take you from zero to 2000 bucks a user by adding a couple little features. Right. And so if, again, my background is all B2B and it's enterprise, like I don't see how I'm doing freemium in enterprise because I can't get to the prices I need to get to. Right. To make it work. And you know what? My customers don't want freemium. They want to pay <laughs> because they want support and they want right. somebody's neck to throttle when things go bad. And, you know, like big enterprises don't want to buy free stuff. They want to pay some money. They don't want to pay too much money, but they want to pay some money because they want to know, like, if, if crap is hitting the fan, they want to pick up the phone right. and call somebody. They don't want to sit there on hold with like Google say, sorry, send us an email. That's, that's not what they want to do. So I think, you know, for, there are vast swaths of, of products where this wouldn't work and you would be grossly undervaluing your stuff. Here's the other thing. My own personal experience with freemium is if you are in a really crowded market space and there's a lot of free products out there, 
there are a good chunk of customers that are just never going to pay. They're going to make do with the free thing. And they're literally out there Googling free software for X. And you don't want those people. You don't, you don't even want them on you as freemium because they're a drag on you and they're never going to convert. And you have a freemium thing and you just filled up your funnel with these people. And I can't tell the difference between them and the people who are actually going to pay. If I charged you a dollar, I would weed all those people out. Yeah, that's And true. so I, I think, you know, if you think price is friction, then charge two bucks. Then at least I get rid of the freebie guys that are never going to, that are never going to reach into their wallet to get their credit card. So I don't know. I, you know, it, 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 I agree that customer acquisition costs are high, but a lot of that customer acquisition costs is it's because you're not differentiated, yeah. man. It's it's because it's because your your positioning is your value proposition is really weak. It's because there is no reason to buy your thing over the 19 free things out there. And dude, making your thing free too isn't going to fix that problem. And so I so I am still pretty negative on freemium. I think in some cases, you know, you have something in your you know baked into your product that makes it really easy for people to upgrade or there's a really obvious split between this is free and this isn't. So, you know, like everything, it depends. And I, I could name you a handful of cases where freemium is a beautiful thing. Um, like Slack, I think, does a great job on this. But, but, they're, but I think they're more the exception than the rule. I think everybody should start by trying to charge people. And if people don't pay, it's because you're not worth paying for. <laughs> wow. So good. Right. And, and that's the hard truth of it. <laughs> it's easier to say, well, it's not that our product sucks. It's there's too much friction. Right. Or whatever competition. It's like if your market's so crowded, then what are you doing in there? Get out of there. Go somewhere where it isn't. Right. It's so good. Uh, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I Just two final questions. What are some advice you would have for marketers who are early in their career, like what would be one advice you would tell them? You know, I, or, or, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I got any good advice on that because I didn't plan my career too much and it all kind of worked <laughs> out. Um, I, I do think that, you know, when you're really early in your career, I think it's good to get lots of like a, a breadth of experience because it opens your eyes to what's possible. Like I was very lucky in that I started in a startup when startups were totally not cool. And so I got this startup experience that nobody else had back then. And then the startup got acquired by a big, amazing company in the Valley. So I worked with them for a couple of years. So, you know, there I was not very far along in my career. And I had these two very different experiences with very different roles and responsibilities, very different things you could do. And so from that, I, you know, I could sort of decide like, well, what do I like more? Do I like working at the big company more? Do I like working in the smaller company? If I'm going to work at the big company, what am I going to focus on? If I'm going to work at the smaller company, what's the job that I want? So I think it's good for people to kind of hop around a little bit. If you have that luxury, like, um, and get your fingers into a lot of stuff and try not to get too specialized at the beginning because, you know, marketing is a big wide world and, you know, there's a, so many disciplines and so many ways to do it, so many different markets. And you kind of got to find the one that jives with your thing. Like, like me, I feel like I'm, you know, I feel like I, you know, in my little brain, <laughs> I'm wired like an engineer. Right. right. And so, I like enterprise because 
it makes more sense to me. <laughs> and, so, right. and quite early on, I got that. And then I also like smaller companies better than bigger companies because they make more sense to me. You know, I, got, I get to the bigger companies and there's all of this. Everybody stopped talking about the customer and everybody was spending more time focused on how they were going to get a promotion and that. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense to me. You know, and so that I so I liked startups because I felt like they just made more sense. Like I could figure out what was going on in a way that I couldn't at the big company. I also liked broader jobs than more narrow jobs. If you stay at the big company too long, eventually you got to pick a thing and you say, okay, I'm product marketing and that's what you're going to be. Um, or I'm PR and that's what you're going to be. And I liked having my fingers in a bunch of stuff because I got lucky and I got one of those jobs right at the beginning. And I was like, this is good. I should have, I should have this kind of job all the time. But um, so I think bumping around is a, is a good thing. I also think that um, early in my career, I got lucky and had a couple of really great bosses. And so sometimes I think uh, it's good to, it's good to really look at the person you're going to be working for and say to yourself, what am I going to learn from this person? Um, so, you know, sometimes we get really carried away with, brand name companies like you know like I knew a guy who took a job at Twitter and I think he took the job at Twitter because he really liked the brand name and he you know especially in Canada sometimes we get blinded by the big valley companies and we'll say oh that guy worked at Twitter but he went and he was miserable he didn't like his boss he you know the thing didn't work out so good and so I you know by all means, take a few big marquee ones just because, you know, people do care about that. But I do think it's worthwhile to look at your boss and kind of say, what am I going to learn from my boss? Is this going to be because I learned a lot from my really good bosses and I learned not very much when I had not so good bosses. <laughs> so good. That's really great advice. Just go broad. Uh, one final question. Where can we find you? Where can we find uh, the book that you're that's coming out? Obviously awesome. What yeah. is your call to action? Obviously, but where's my call to action? My website is a good place to go find out about things. So it's aprildunford.com. And if you go there, there'll be information about the book and you can find out where to buy the book. If you go Amazon or anywhere else, you can Google me or you can Google Obviously Awesome and you'll find it. But um, And then I don't do a lot of social media these days because I just... I, I can't do too many channels. And so, but the place where I'm the most active is Twitter. So if you're on Twitter, you can follow me at April Dunford on Twitter and you can find me there. So good. Thanks so much, April. I really appreciate it. I took up an hour of your time and yeah, thank well, you for thanks being so much generous. for having me on. No problem. Hey, thanks for listening on this episode. Oh man, my mind was just blown after listening to that chat with April. Uh, I am going to get his, her book. If you are listening to me, please uh, check out that book this is something that i wish i learned when i was starting off in my marketing career uh, career i wish this is something that i was taught in in college or university when i was going there but please go get it obviously awesome go to aprildunford.com uh if you enjoy this show if you want if you really like oh this is so good please if you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play so we can get this podcast to more marketers out there. As I said in the beginning, if you want the tweetable quotes from April, and you probably heard of so many, go to growthmarketing.today forward slash 039. Other than that, keep on growing. <laughs>